This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. After a trip to Israel this week, President Biden addressed the nation Thursday night with an urgent plea to support both Israel and Ukraine in their respective wars. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Help us keep American troops out of harm's way. Help us build a world that is safer, more peaceful, more prosperous for our children and grandchildren. Biden is promising aid to U.S. allies and is asking Congress for $74 billion. But for that to happen, Republicans will have to choose a leader in the House. And that's not looking likely this week. We've got a full house in the studio today with us, Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at HuffPost. Thanks for being here, Arthur. Thank you for having me. Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent at The New York Times. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome back. Great to be here. And Todd Zwillick, a voice you're familiar with here on 1A, Deputy D.C. Bureau Chief at Vice News, who also writes the Breaking the Vote newsletter on democracy and indictments. Hey, Todd. Great to see you. Last night was only the second time President Biden has addressed Americans from the Oval Office, and it was 15 minutes during primetime. Arthur, let's start with your takeaways from last night's address. The top thing here was the president linking Israel and Ukraine, because this is where uh, U.S. foreign policy is about to start getting moving. Um, And he didn't just say Congress needs to approve aid for both of these countries. He actually said that Israel and Ukraine face similar threats because they're both democracies whose opponents want to destroy them. I I think that analogy may be a little strained, given the difference in the balance of power in those two conflicts. Um, But that's that's the main thing. And secondarily, he he repeated the support for Israel that's been really unequivocal since the start of the conflict, uh, but also said uh, that Palestinians are not responsible for what Hamas does. Um, it's, It's a terrorist organization that was not elected. Uh, they, you know, they won a plurality vote in 2006. And so he, he tried to make clear that the United States does not support what critics of this conflict in the Middle East consider uh, you know, really unfair. And he also said a lot about the six-year-old boy who was murdered by his crazy landlord, who is uh, an Islamophobic right-wing radio listener, And I think that was significant. That sent a message to some critics among uh, progressives and and Democrats in the U.S. that uh, the Biden administration had been overly siding with Israel. I do want to talk about the death of Wadia Fuyume in a moment. But Cheryl, President Biden visited Israel Wednesday, which was not long after a hospital in Gaza was blown up. Israel and Hamas continue to trade blame for that explosion. 
What did you make of President Biden's assertion that the other team, in other words, Islamic Jihad, was responsible? You know, I think this is a signal that President Biden is standing firmly with Israel, that this is the, the camp that he is in. And I think this is a delicate path for him to walk because he has people on the Democratic left saying that we need to have humanitarian aid uh, funneled to Gaza. He, It's true he came up with an agreement to, to do that. It hasn't happened yet. But he's under a lot of pressure from both sides, both to stand with Israel and also, though, to show support for the innocent Palestinians whose lives are, are being threatened and lost. And by stating that clearly and firmly that he believed Israel was not responsible, you know, he he put his foot in one camp. Todd, so Biden was supposed to meet with Arab leaders this week, but those talks were canceled. How important was this trip for the ongoing conflict? And as we're saying, maintaining communications with all sides here? Well, critically important to the overall conflict, because whenever the president of the United States drops into a war zone and brings the world's attention right on it. It's important. But the trip might have been le- much less, um, had much less of an impact ha- than it would have had leaders like uh, King Hussein of Jordan and others in Saudi Arabia have not canceled. And they canceled as a direct result of what Cheryl was talking about, about the explosion at the Baptist Hospital in Gaza and the information slash disinformation that spread like wildfire right after this attack. And I I think it was an incredibly important and troubling moment, first of all, of course, for the dead, for the dead on that property and the people who were injured and killed, women, children, men, horrible. As we step back from it, um, this was an incident where, not a ballistics expert, impossible for me to determine who is responsible. Well, right. Let's go. What do we know about who was responsible? Well, uh, it's going to take us a long time to parse all of that, except um, as both sides blame the other, the physical evidence on site appears appears to count against an Israeli airstrike. It's, I, I think most objective viewers of this site believe that that's not what an Israeli airstrike looks like. Which is what the White House has said. Correct. And the White House says we're not only uh, relying on the Israelis, the National Security Council says the U.S. has independent assessments. The Israelis, to be fair, have lied all the time about their military operations. Um, they they lied about the killing of Shireen uh, Abu Akleh in the West Bank. So not taking Israel's word for it in this case, in other words. Um, all of the physical evidence appears to point to not an Israeli airstrike. There isn't any direct proof that it was an Islamic Jihad rocket, although the very small sort of one meter crater, it fits with all that, the blast radius of fire, there are cars that are sort of burned on one side. It all kind of fits with that. And I only sort of go there into the forensic analysis, which we're not going to solve from here, which, which is how important the claims of responsibility and blame spread. Um, Overall, I think a lot of media outlets did a very poor job in jumping to conclusions on this story, um, which caused, helped cause, look, uh, the Arab street does not get its news from the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN largely, so, so they're not to blame for the fact that all these other leaders headed for the exits. Um, but in a worldwide information environment, the disinformation over this particular attack led to real world political consequences here in America. I think it was yet another 
very important lesson about uh, reporting on crisis, reporting in a disinformation environment. We are headed into an election ourselves where disinformation will be part of the matrix, and we have to just get better at how we parse it. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking also about, about Biden, and this is also a really critically important test for Biden, uh, both his trip to Israel and also the speech that he gave on Thursday night. Um, it's really a test for him of whether or not his vision of America as a leader in the global world order is still the vision of ordinary Americans. And, you know, he's the last of a generation of American presidents to have been alive, just barely in his case during World War II. He was raised by parents who um, who survived and was shaped by the Depression and by that war. He's always envisioned himself uh, kind of in the mold of Roosevelt and other wartime president. And now he is thrust into this position of not only leading the world and America during crises in the Middle East and in Europe, at the same time that Congress can't get its act together, um, but also making the case that Americans should care about this, that the threat to America is rising. He is speaking to an audience that is global and also local. He's facing his own reelection. And so I think every Every move that he makes is fraught in this situation. Cheryl, that's a really important point that he's making the case. And Arthur, I wanted to ask you about this. What's, let's set aside the lack of a speaker. We will get to that conversation later. Even if there was one, what's the likelihood of congressional approval of this additional aid for Ukraine and Israel? I think there are more than enough people in both the House and Senate that would support aid for both Ukraine and Israel. And the problem is solely one of leadership in the House. Um, And regarding Cheryl's point about uh, uh, Biden's speech, there was a clear domestic politics message there, which was, uh, I may be old, but I keep going to war zones. Uh, And the White House was sure to amplify in the past few days reporters who were making that observation. So it's, it's not all about world affairs and diplomacy. It's also about getting reelected. Spent significant time talking about his train trip That's from right, Poland to Ukraine. into Kiev. Yes. Hey, folks, I went to war zones. I'm the guy who drops into war zones. But, but let's face it. But I'm, also really... the, I'm the one who negotiated this aid yep. getting into Gaza. Right. But this is not to say it was Bi- a frivolous no. trip. No. It's just right. that it also has this. I was going to say, in fairness to Biden, though, this is really who Biden is. I mean, Biden was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Biden is on a first name basis with heads of state around the world. And this decades is, of relationship. Right. This is what he decades lives for, of this relationship. Kind of thing, yeah. This is a this is actually a real strength of his um, foreign policy. And so the White House, I think, is o- o- eager, but maybe justifiably so, to to show that side of him to the public. And I just thought it was fascinating briefly that he reached back. You say Biden has been on the case for 50 years. He's the sort of the last of his generation that views foreign policy in this way. He reached right back to FDR in his speech, saying that America was the arsenal of democracy. That's an FDR line. That's mobilizing American forces in the service of democracy, just like FDR did um, at the dawn of World War II. We're rounding up the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Let's get back to the news roundup with this question we got from Tony. Todd, I'm going to have you take this one. He emailed to ask, why are we sending aid to Israel before we get U.S. citizens out of Gaza? We sent planes and ships to get U.S. citizens out of Israel. Why aren't we doing more for our citizens in Gaza? It has been two weeks. Well, uh Some U.S. citizens, we had a similar dilemma in Kabul and in Afghanistan. When the close of that war was coming, there were hundreds of American citizens throughout throughout the country, some of which desperately wanted to get out, some of whom seemed to want to stay and weren't responding to calls from the embassy to evacuate. So that made it complicated, too. I have to assume that it's a similar situation in Gaza about who comes and who goes. Making that contingent on U.S. aid um, may not really be a connection. I mean, Biden is making the request. I don't think that we're going to see that request fulfilled tomorrow or even next week. We can talk about that, too, when it lands on dysfunctional Capitol Hill. So tying those things directly together or putting... It would, be, it would be hard to imagine where the pressure would be applied. Um, for instance, pressurizing, putting pressure on the Israelis, you don't get your aid until you, what, open a border crossing so we can get our people out. I'm not sure that Israel would feel responsible for, for Palestinian Americans, dual citizens who live in Gaza. That would get complicated, too. Far from the fighting in Gaza, six-year-old Wadia Al-Fayoumi was killed in his Chicago suburb this week. Police say the boy's landlord stabbed Wadia to death and seriously injured his mother. Arthur, what do we know about this family, why they were the subject of this attack? Wadia is an American citizen. And he, as far as we know, the only reason he was murdered is because his family was Muslim. Um, but, there, you know, I, what we know about the landlord who did it is uh, a, that his wife said he listened to right-wing radio. Um, I, I assume there was something else wrong with him, uh, because this is so brazen. He just, he just murdered the boy and stabbed the mother and then just went outside and waited for police to come arrest him. It it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and it's, and the white house has been focusing on it as a way of showing empathy for what's going wrong in Gaza. So. I I agree that it seems like something was seriously wrong with this person, but I think we have to go to kind of the core of this crime, which is that this was an act of Islamophobic, you know, domestic terrorism. And for me, anyway, it harks back to what we saw after 9-11, which was, you know, peace-loving Muslims in the United States being, you know, indiscriminately 
attacked and discriminated against. And it's something that we really need to guard against right now. And you saw the president speaking uh, in his remarks last night about we have no place in American society for Islamophobia. We have no place for anti-Semitism. But I think the attack on this child, the murder of this child, really puts a fine point on how the White House needs to lead in a way that does not spawn further hatred in our society. And it, it, it's a horrific attack, and I think we should all grieve for his family. Arab American leaders are calling out the seriousness of incidents like this story that we're talking about. And in a private call on Monday with the State Department, human rights lawyer Zaha Hassan said the administration's rhetoric about Palestinians was, quote, dehumanizing. Todd, do we know whether the the administration might moderate its language in terms of what we're talking about here? We do hear President Biden always say, you know, Hamas is not the palace, is not the Palestinian people. Is that enough? Well, It's not enough, but it seems like it did have an impact on the administration. When you look at not only the president, but the National Security Council, the various spokespersons there, rhetoric immediately after Hamas's pogrom against Jews in southern Israel, which is what it was, um, that rhetoric of, uh, of unmitigated support for Israel, which I think is a matter of policy, the United States still has, the rhetoric did shift. And I think it largely shifted after that call. You saw White House uh, spokes, uh, spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre. You saw spokespersons from the National Security Council and the president himself and at the State Department all making pains to give voice to Palestinian dignity and um, and self-determination, to give a voice to the need to fight Islamophobia right up to the president of the United States who made it a major theme of his speech. Unfortunately, he was able to draw a very fine point on it because of the horrific assault on this mother and the murder of a, of a child, of a child in suburban Chicago. So I think it did have an impact. I think it did have an impact. And there's, and there's still tension in the administration uh, over, but, over this issue. But it could be argued that the administration could have exercised restraint or a little bit more restraint after that horrific attack. I think Todd rightly called it a pogrom against Israeli citizens. But they also could have seen this coming. They could have seen that Israel would react very strongly and that they would be in a position to try to exercise some sort of caution or 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 moderation. And so, and, and you know, First impressions last, right? This was the very first thing they said after this attack happened, and now they are trying gently to to walk it back, but um, people remember. This week, a State Department official named Josh Paul resigned over the Biden administration's, quote, blind support for one side. Here he is talking with NPR's Michelle Martin on Thursday. Earlier this year, um, the Biden administration issued a new conventional arms transfer policy which is the policy, public policy, it's on the White House website, uh, that guides the framework under which we authorize arms transfers. And that policy explicitly states, no arms transfer will be authorized where the United States assesses that it is more likely than not that the arms to be transferred will be used by the recipient to commit, facilitate the recipient's commission of, or to aggravate risks that the recipient will commit, genocide, crimes against humanity, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, including attacks intentionally directed against civilian objects or civilians protected as such, 
or other serious violations of international humanitarian or human rights law. Uh, it goes on. So I think my first recommendation would be that this administration simply follow their own public commitments. That was former State Department official Josh Paul. Arthur, what does this say about the way the Biden administration has been, I would say, largely very quiet when it comes to internal dissent? This is a very public break that we haven't heard very much. Uh, my colleague Akbar Ahmed at HuffPost interviewed Paul and also several other people whose names are not public complaining that there's been a, a, a culture of silence within the State Department and other federal agencies with regard to questioning the uh, you know unmitigated support for Israel. Uh, with One person even said the, this is the first time in the administration that there was a culture of silence. It feels like post 9-11 where you, your thoughts are being policed and you don't want to be seen as anti-American or anti-Semitic. So Paul represents uh, the so, uh, sort of a trend among some people within the administration feeling that they can't, they can't speak out. But I would say that he also has said that you know, he, he knew there were moral compromises involved in a job that deals with dealing arms to foreign governments. And so this was something he'd struggled with for a decade before he finally quit because of this. I, I think it also, to, to make this about policy for a moment, since Josh Paul does work at the did work at the State Department. Um, ten, 10 years ago, at least before the Trump administration, you could have really pushed back on the claim that the United States was unabashedly pro-Israel and was only dealing with one side because U.S. policy was a two-state solution and was strong support for the Palestinian Authority. That is still technically U.S. policy, but a two-state solution, that ship has sailed, and it sailed years ago. It doesn't exist on the ground right now. It doesn't exist, certainly in the Likud government led by Benjamin Netanyahu. I know we're not going to delve very far into foreign policy here. No, but that's right. But, you know... President Biden mentioned it in his speech, but he was as an anachronism, as an anachronism for a policy that doesn't exist now. I would be interested, actually, in hearing the voice of Samantha Power in this debate. You know, she is the USAID administrator. As a journalist, she wrote a book on the Armenian genocide. She has been a forceful advocate for uh, humanitarian assistance and to my mind, she's been kind of noticeably quiet. You know, we talked about differing views within the the administration. And I suspect that um, the resignation of Josh Paul is indicative of a broader um, debate, internal debate going on within the administration. And, and maybe in particular, the State Department, which is our vehicle for diplomacy um, about how we should be responding. The other big story in Washington, it's been nearly three weeks and the House of Representatives is still without a speaker. This week, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan failed three times to rally enough votes to become speaker. We picked up a few. We lost a few. I think the ones we lost can come back. So, uh, look, there's been multiple rounds of votes for speaker before. Um, We all know that. I just know that we need to get a speaker as soon as possible so we can get to work for the American people. That was Congressman Jordan speaking at a news conference ahead of the failed third vote. Arthur, what's Jordan's path forward here? He doesn't have one. So he said, you know, we some people have gone back and forth, so I'm going to flip some of the people who vote against me. So I, I talked to those people, and they're not going to flip. And uh, I think Jordan knows that, and he thinks that a very grinding long-term pressure campaign could work. But they've said that that won't work. And what does long term th- mean? Well, he's done the third failed vote now. 
and by the Kevin McCarthy yardstick, that leaves a dozen more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's extremely implausible. He's much less popular within the conference, the Republican conference, than Kevin McCarthy was. And it's it's all about, I, I think, saving face at this point and making himself look like a victim. I think he's trying to capitalize, frankly, on the president's speech last night. I mean, he had this press conference at eight o'clock this morning saying, you know, look, we need to, you know, we need to deliver this humanitarian aid. That's an argument for, you know, for getting a speaker. We need a speaker. And, you know, basically the message was, here I am, <laughs> you know, we're we're paralyzed until we get somebody in charge. So all the more reason to put me in charge. So Todd, if not him, who? Well, one of the ideas floated this week was to make North Carolina's Patrick McHenry, who is the speaker pro tem, he's sort of the sort of the guy that Kevin McCarthy handed the gavel to to sort of he like you 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 deal with it. You at least preside over this when he got ousted. And this is something moderates in both parties were supporting. Moderates in both parties. And then this idea got floated for about a millisecond yesterday and then dropped like a rock. There are Republicans upon Republicans upon Republicans who don't want to do this. They don't want this way out. I think there's something very uh, important when you step back from this issue going on with Jim Jordan and his inability to get to 217 and he and he and he won't get there. First of all, um, Jim Jordan sta- stated in his press conference this morning once again that he thinks the election was stolen. Now, that won't come as a surprise. The 2020 presidential election. Correct. Okay. What did I say? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I just <laughs> want to remind everybody. <laughs> that one. Yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, he repeated that. And it's important that he repeated it because um, one key member, and there were several key members, one key member in particular, a conservative Freedom Caucus member for now named Ken Buck, made it clear that he wanted his support to be contingent on Jim Jordan abandoning this lie that the election was stolen and this this uh, Trumpist yoke that's on our democracy. He, he explicitly said, we cannot go into the next election being the party that thinks that January 6th was a cool tourist visit and that the election was stolen. And I think when you step back from this, what you're witnessing is something that could be very interesting. We don't know yet. A lot of these Republicans in the House who are now facing death threats, but also bullying tactics, robocalls in their districts from from a faction of the House Republican conference that lacks the votes. Steve Scalise won in conference and they tanked him. Then they turned around and said Jordan or nothing. And a lot of members don't like that. Their wives are getting death threats. They're getting death threats. And here's what happens. Conservative Republicans in the House have gotten maga Now, they have been the target of anti-democratic MAGA tactics. And guess what? They really, really don't like it. They will never vote for Jim Jordan. And I I bring this up to say it's going to be very interesting to see, could this be, could this be the beginning of the Republican Party realizing from inside, which is where it will have to be, that MAGA is not in their interest. They don't want to live under this influence in the Republican Party any longer. We have about a minute left before we have to take a break, but I want to get to this listener question. Jeff is asking, why can't moderate Republicans nominate a House speaker that would be acceptable to most Democrats? So I think this is actually really important. Jim Jordan said earlier this this week that the job of the speaker is to be the speaker for all Republicans. That's actually not true. No, it's not. The job of the speaker is to be the speaker of the House the speaker of the whole house. Um, frankly, Not I don't... the speaker of the majority party. Right. I don't think it's going to happen that Republicans will join with Democrats to elect a speaker. But, you know, in the vision of the founding fathers, I think maybe it would. By the and, way, and it, only, it only takes 
they they can make it happen. It only takes four Republicans I was to say what's the math here. Five. Right? Well, they're not going to elect Joaquin Jeffries. It, it, it could happen today if they wanted, but right. the Republican leadership. Uh, the the election is a good a good thing to bring up because they're living in an unreal this fake reality where Democrats don't exist. We're going to take a quick pause here and head to a break. We'll be back with more of the news roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Let's get back to the conversation with this question we got from Kenneth, who writes, Seems like Jim Jordan has shut down Congress and his efforts to eventually shut down the entire federal government. How long can he continue to demand floor votes on his failed speakership bid? Kenneth is so yeah. right. That is what has happened. Although I would say it was Matt Gates who lit the fuse and now Jim Jordan is refusing to put out the fire. They could, you know, the, the, bi- the bipartisan majority exists and is just waiting and is actually inevitable if you ever want to fund the government because Republicans have proven that they can't do it and, and uh, Democrats are sitting there waiting for a bipartisan vote. I mean, I mean, I think you could go a little bit earlier than Matt Gates, which is that Kevin McCarthy agreed to allow himself to be held hostage. And he sort of made a deal with the devil in order to get the speaker's job after 15 votes. He agreed that uh, the conference could oust him with, you know, simply one person, that person being Matt Gates, to... Um, to, to call a vote. And it's interesting. The point about redundancy or lack of redundancy is interesting. After 9-11, when there was concern that, you know, the leadership of Congress could be wiped out in a terrorist attack, Congress adopted this framework of the speaker pro tem. And basically, it's someone who really has no authority, as we're seeing now, except to uh, manage the proceedings until the next speaker is selected. That person, the speaker was given the authority to select who the speaker pro tem would be. Kevin McCarthy selected Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Now we're in the situation where McHenry is presiding over these proceedings, but basically has no authority to do anything. I think it's interesting and important that this chaos in the House emanates largely from the Trumpist Freedom Caucus. Um, they were the genesis. Crazy eight, as McCarthy calls well, them. Well, y- yes. And th- the group is wider than that. But they are the ones 
to Cheryl's point, who demanded that Kevin McCarthy could only ascend to the speakership with a motion to vacate of one vote. They're the ones who put the sword of Damocles over McCarthy's head. Then when Steve Scalise won in conference, they're the ones who tanked Steve Scalise so that the 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 uh, speaker designate, the one who had a majority of the majority, couldn't get the speakership. They are the ones who are relentlessly telling Jim Jordan not to give up. And they are the ones who are applying this these tactics of the minority to the House of Representatives. It's, it's a, it is the same philosophy that leads a party that has lost an election by 7 million votes to convene an angry mob on Capitol Hill to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And now we're seeing that actual elected officials, conservatives from within the Republican fold, are starting to have these very same strategies enacted upon them. And I think they don't like it. Last question on this. As all of this happens, we've already talked about Israel and Ukraine funding. What else isn't getting done in Congress because of this holdup? Arthur? The big thing is that uh, come November 17th, the federal government runs out of funding. So they have to pass something to prevent a government shutdown or you know a partial government shutdown at that time. And uh, if they don't do it, that's what's going to happen. And, and it looks increasingly likely. And And by the way, a lot of people think that that is the catalyst that has to arrive to give enough pain to members of Congress, Republicans in particular, to solve this problem. Um, but what is the solution to this problem? Like, well, by, a, a bipartisan bill is the only way right. out, and they're, they're not in the headspace to even be contemplating that right now. Maybe another... by November 17th they yeah. would be. They exactly. don't have another speaker candidate, they as don't. far as and, I can uh, see. Oh, they have some other people who also can't win. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's move on to news, as you were saying, of Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner. Federal Judge Tanya Chutkin issued a limited gag order on former President Trump this week. It's supposed to prevent Trump from making public comments about people involved in his D.C. trial. He's facing trial for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Trump responded to the order with more harsh words. This is weaponry all being done because Joe Biden is losing the election and losing very, very badly to all of us in the polls. He's losing badly. But what they don't understand is that I am willing to go to jail if that's what it takes for our country to win and become a democracy again. Cheryl, what are the consequences of disobeying a gag order? I think we're going to see. And I don't I think we frankly don't know because this is such an unusual case. This is not just an ordinary gag order. I mean, an ordinary defendant disobeys a gag order. The judge could say, well, I hold you in contempt of court and, you know, you're going to go to jail. Well, is it is Judge Chutkin going to send Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, to jail? What What would that look like? And I think it can be expected that Trump is going to push this as far as he possibly can. He clearly wants to dare Judge Hutkin to crack down on him. And there are some ambiguities in her order that that make it almost inevitable that there's going to be a confrontation. A lot of these questions that Cheryl raises are unanswered. There's no script in the law that says a federal judge, you know, you will go to jail if you violate. It is completely up to her discretion. It will be up to her discretion to admonish him or to threaten him or maybe put him behind bars. It seems unlikely that that would ever happen. And also it has implications for appeal. Um, This uh, limited gag order, um, even though it seems to have very solid First Amendment basis and judge the judge made clear in her order why Trump's statements threatening jurors, threatening the court, trying to poison the jury pool, intimidating witnesses are simply not in the interest of justice. And and that's a ruling that is that is 
completely within the law to this And he JV can still lawyer. talk about Biden. He can still say he, Biden's absol- losing, can, et cetera. Donald Trump has been lying about this gag order since it was, this, this limited gag order since it was released. It does not limit him from talking about Joe Biden or the Justice Department or the stolen election or the witch hunt. He can say all of those things. He may not threaten witnesses. He may not poison the jury pool. He may not uh, a- attack uh employees of the court the way he did in New York. Todd suggested that maybe there's a reckoning with the death threat wing of the Republican Party. I just want to point out that this gag order says when the defendant has publicly attacked individuals, including on matters related to this case, those individuals are consequently threatened and harassed. And and the ju- yeah, and the judge is also very concerned about not just threats coming from Donald Trump's mouth, but green lighting of threats that come from his implications when his proxies go out and threaten people. They, they don't come from him. That's how it works. Right. It's he a, it's he walks up to the not. line and she even said, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest, Henry II? Remember that? Henry II said, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest, the, the troublesome Archbishop of Canterbury? In 1170, his name was Thomas Beckett. He never said, hey, knights, go and kill this guy. I don't like him. But when he said, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? A couple of them just said, you know what? They just kind of went and murdered him on the altar with their swords, legendary story. And Judge Judge Chuchkin knew it, and she told his lawyer that Henry II is applicable here, and your client can't imply publicly that people should go and issue threats. What could this mean for Trump's trial, this particular trial? Well, it, it, it should limit Donald Trump's ability to poison the jury pool and to threaten witnesses, which he is already... That's the intention, you're saying. That That's the intention. It could also, if Donald Trump is ever convicted give grounds for appeal, which is well, something that the judge also has to balance. Also, he could tr- he, he is trying to appeal this uh, order a- already, and presumably yes. he could try to tie up the fight over the order in the courts, thus delaying the actual trial. Those appeals can also go in parallel. It doesn't have to delay the trial. He can, he can appeal this gag order, can go up to the Supreme Court, but Often what the appeals court will do is say there's no stay here. We'll consider whether this gag order is appropriate. Defendants have rights, but we're not going to delay the trial. The trial can keep going while we consider your appeal. His other his key strategy, other than poisoning the jury pool and threatening witnesses, is to delay to delay. And the court may not allow that. One last question on this. A listener writes in, anyone else would have gone to jail for doing what Trump has done? Why the double standard? Good question. Because he is the former president of the United States. That's, you know, it's... And he knows it. Seems wrong. Yeah, but that's the reason. Yep. On Thursday morning, former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell pleaded guilty in the Georgia election interference case one day before jury selection. Powell's one of 19 people charged, including former President Trump. What are the details of this deal, Arthur? Well, she's got to apologize. She recorded a video statement, you know, confessing to her crimes. And she's going to testify against the other defendants. So it's a huge flip. It's bad news for Trump, and people don't want to go to jail for him, it looks like. Todd, what does this mean for President Trump, for his case? Extraordinary. After, you know, almost three years, three years next month, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani in the infamous uh, hair dye press conference, and all of the lies, all of the defamation, all of the sanctions from courts, all of the fines from irate judges, all of the bad lawsuits later, that Sidney Powell, the Kraken, Sidney Powell is finally pled guilty to six counts. She did it yesterday. So the the implications here, I talked to a couple of prosecutors about this. Um, Sidney Powell does have to testify truthfully and fully 
about what she knows. And that could provide a very important narrative of the conspiracy here. Remember, Georgia is a RICO conspiracy case tying it all together. These cases can get complicated. They can get lugubrious. And what prosecutors like is somebody who can help tell the story, somebody who was in the room and where it happened, so to speak. And that's she the is big that thing. Person. She's the inner yeah. circle. Can you remind circle. us? Can yeah. you give us some background again on Sidney Powell, Cheryl? Just remind us what we need to know. So she is she was in Trump's inner circle. She was one of the lawyers advising him in Georgia as they conspired to, you know, breach the elections system. And she has been a staunch defender for all of this time. So this flip, I think, is very striking. And to me, it suggests that there may be more coming. You know, what we're no, we know that another one of Trump's lawyers, Kenneth Chesbro, has been offered a plea deal. We don't know what's going to happen with that. But um, it could be this is the first of some dominoes that begin to fall and, and in, here's what's, in Trump world, in the in the inner circle. Because she's the insider. And here's, right. what's, here's what's critical about Sidney Powell in this case. She was present at the Oval Office meeting on December 18th with Rudy Giuliani. Mark Meadows, uh, Michael Flynn, a whole cast of other MAGA characters. This is the meeting where you, you, you may remember where people were urging Trump to send the military out, seize voting machines, declare me special counsel for election interference. All of these ideas, it, it, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel in the room, shouting and screaming and cursing at one another, trying to gain the president's favor for what direction this stolen election fervor was going to go ultimately. And by the way, that was the night later on that night that Trump issued the the foreboding tweet, be there, will be wild. It was later on that night, I think in the, in the wee hours of the morning. So Sidney Powell was in that room. She can tell the story and she has to tell the story. However, she does not have a plea deal that we know of in the federal case. She is an unindicted co-conspirator in Jack Smith's DC coup case. This guilty plea is only for Georgia. So What'll happen when she gets on the stand in Georgia? We don't know. Will she take the fifth if she's asked questions that could impeach her in D.C.? Is she negotiating a deal with Jack Smith right now? Prosecutors tell me the one thing that doesn't quite make sense to them here, usually when your client has criminal exposure in multiple jurisdictions, you want one deal that keeps you out of jail. I don't want to have to go over here and get charged. She doesn't have that. She's not charged in D.C. yet. But she might be. So the fact that she made a deal to flip on Trump and stay out of jail in Fulton County, is she going to turn around and say, well, I might go to jail in D.C.? Probably not. We haven't heard the last from Sidney Powell. One last story for you all. If you've been waiting for rates to cool before buying a home, we've got some bad news. The latest figures from the Mortgage Bankers Association show mortgage rates have increased for six straight weeks. During that same period, demand for home loans dropped to their lowest level in nearly 30 years, and interest rates for 30-year mortgages are nearing 8%, the highest they've been since 2000. Quick word from you guys about what you're watching for this weekend. This oh weekend, it's, I, it's Jim Jordan Jim beating Jordan's. his head against the wall. <laughs> I, I'm watching to see if humanitarian aid gets through to the people of Gaza. Yeah. I'm headed straight to the Capitol to be with Jim. To be with Jim Jordan. Yes. Okay. Um, and Cheryl, I, Cheryl's right, by the way. It is by far the most important thing is 20 trucks waiting outside of Rafah in Egypt. Uh, humanitarian aid to get through to, to Gaza is by far the most important story. 
And what are we, in terms of the administration, are we seeing any more trips back there this next week or two? We've, was well, Tony week. Blinken, the Secretary of State, has been doing a sort of a modern version of shuttle diplomacy. I'm not sure what is and on his schedule. And I think Gavin Newsom is there for what that's worth from California. And a, uh, a random Republican from Wisconsin has also gone there instead of going to show support for Jim Jordan. My thanks this week go to Arthur Delaney, senior reporter at HuffPost, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent at The New York Times, and Todd Willick, deputy D.C. bureau chief at Vice News and author of the Breaking the Vote newsletter on democracy and indictments. Thank you all for joining us today. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup, we'll have the latest on the war between Israel and Hamas and what effect, if any, President Biden's attempts at diplomacy have had. And we visit Europe to understand the meaning of Poland's election and discuss violent protests this week in Germany as France bans pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com AI for people. Let's get into this global edition of the News Roundup protests around the world over Israel's war in Gaza. The U.N. chief warns of a humanitarian nightmare in Sudan, and this week Ukraine marks 600 days since the Russian invasion with no end in sight. Our experts guests this hour, David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Hi, David. Hello. Anna Edgerton, Seattle bureau chief and national security reporter at Bloomberg News. Welcome back, Anna. Great to be here. And James Kitfield, a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and author of the book In the Company of Heroes, the Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients from America's Longest Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In studio with me. Welcome, James. Great to be with you. Let's start in Gaza. It's been nearly two weeks since a surprise Hamas attack on Israel ignited the deadliest ever of five Israel-Gaza conflicts. The Palestinian Health Ministry said on Thursday that 4,137 people have been killed and more than 13,000 injured. The Israeli government says more than 1,400 people have been killed, most during the Hamas attack on Saturday, October 7th. Israel says at least 200 hostages are being held by Hamas. The U.S. State Department says 13 Americans remain missing. On Thursday, during a visit to Egypt, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on Hamas and Israel to agree to a two-week humanitarian ceasefire to facilitate aid getting to Palestinians in Gaza. Civilians in Gaza desperately need core services and supplies, and for that we need rapid and impeded humanitarian access. 
We need food, water, medicine and fuel now. We need it at scale and we need it to be sustained. UN Secretary General Guterres speaking from Egypt. He's there to supervise preparations for the delivery of aid into Gaza via Egypt's Rafah crossing. David, Guterres says he's dealing with, quote, restrictions on being impo- that are being imposed on aid deliveries to Gaza. What are those restrictions? Well, it's basically a complete difference of opinion between the Israeli government, some members of which have basically described placing Gaza under complete siege and not allowing any water or fuel or electricity to enter. Now, clearly, they've been under tremendous pressure from all the foreign visitors led by President Biden, but other leaders have gone and said that that cannot be the approach. But the remnants of that siege strategy are clearly what is leading to the problems now. And so you're seeing, although there's tremendous efforts by the United Nations and others, uh, that basically the two powers on either side of that border, Egypt on the kind of the the non-Gaza side and Israel outside, are at odds about whether you should allow fuel in with this first convoy of 20 trucks, where you should allow them to screen those convoys for arms. And you saw an extraordinary piece of political theatre, I mean, in in a good cause, where the United Nations Secretary General stood at the border crossing today uh, in front of cameras and microphones and said, these trucks are not just trucks, they are a lifeline, they are the difference between life and death, they must be allowed through. So clearly trying to overcome that obstacle of the Israeli government, which still sees in some ways that Gaza needs to be placed under siege. Also this week, Israel and Hamas traded blame for who was responsible for the attack on the Al-Ahi hospital. Israeli defense forces say the rocket was fired by Islamic Jihad. Hamas says it came from Israel. U.S. security officials believe that a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket misfired. The hospital was packed with wounded and other Palestinians seeking shelter from air raids. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says hundreds were killed. NPR has not been able to independently verify that number. This morning, when I drove into the hospital, I noted how full the hospital courtyard was with families who had sought refuge inside the hospital, thinking that it would be a safe haven. It's these very same families who are now either dead or critically wounded as a result of this attack. That was Doctors Without Borders surgeon Ghassan Abusita speaking from the hospital after the explosion. Anna, international humanitarian law calls for the protection of civilians and attacks on hospitals, schools, or UN buildings are forbidden. What hope is there for reaching an answer on who this attack or where this attack originated from? Well, I think that clip you just played helps explain why there was such a um, serious humanitarian toll when there was just light damage to the actual hospital itself from this attack, be it from Israeli forces or from Palestinians. The... um, as you played in that clip, there were people gathered in the courtyard and in the parking lot of this hotel seeking refuge, thinking that the hospital would be a safe place. And those were the people who were ended up being the casualties. Now, Gaza officials have put the toll at 471 people killed. U.S. officials think that toll is actually closer to uh, between 100 and 300 people. So, you know, a lot of um, different narratives about who was responsible, a lot of different narratives about the blame. The U.S. and, you know, led by President Biden, has supported the Israeli um, explanation of what happened, that this was a rocket misfired by the Islamic Jihad. And um, they've cited civilian videos, satellite imagery, missile activity tracked by infrared sensors as 
how they were able to come to that conclusion. So you know, there's a lot of um, you know, different narratives and different um, ways to interpret that and kind of use this event to kind of win over or turn public opinion against whichever side in this conflict. The, the famous saying that truth is the first casualty of any war, is, you know, it pertains especially to this war when there's very few journalists who can be in Gaza because of the danger, because of the hostage taking. So we, it's hard to confirm anything. Uh, the forensic evidence from the United States and Israel uh, convinces me that it's more likely than not that it was, uh, it was a failed uh, rocket shooting out of Gaza because they have uh, tra- radar tracks of those missiles going right over the hospital. Um, also the blast radius, but most convincing probably is there's intercepts they have, but at the time of the of the this horrible horrible incident, um, that suggests that the, the 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 Hamas knew that there was a, the one of the rockets had failed and and hit the hospital. That said, I mean it's not surprising that the Palestinians in Gaza would jump to the conclusion of this. Really, they've been bombarded by probably the heaviest bombardment in the history of Gaza, and it's been bombarded a lot over the years when these wars and these outbreaks of violence happen. So they're being bombarded by Israel, and so it's not a stretch for them to think, you know, without having a, a lot of evidence to suggest it, that it was Israel doing this. The hospital attack was perhaps a turning point in this most recent war between Hamas and Israel. Shortly afterwards, a summit that was due to be held between Biden and several Arab leaders in Amman, Jordan, was canceled. Here's Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Given this massacre that took place tonight and having the I decided to stop my visit and to go back home so that I can be with my people during this painful situation and hard times. I've agreed with my brothers in Egypt and Jordan to cancel the summit that was supposed to take place with President Biden. And I call on everyone for unity. Despite calls for unity, Abbas is facing protesters at home in the occupied West Bank where there are questions over his leadership. President Biden did head to Israel, though, for a lightning-fast visit and met with his counterpart, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, will not let you ever be alone. President Biden speaking in Tel Aviv on Wednesday. He reaffirmed the U.S. support in a speech on Thursday evening from the Oval Office. Anna, what does this support of Israel look like? Um, it's been pretty steadfast and pretty um, immediate. You know, right after that horrific attack on October 7th, Biden w- came out very strongly in support of Israel. You know, we saw the images of him physically uh, you know, literally and figuratively embracing Netanyahu on the on the tarmac there in Israel. So, you know, whatever Israel does in this conflict, the U.S. is very much going to have some ownership of because of that close embrace. Now, we know from what Biden said in Israel, and again last night in the Oval Office, that he's urged um, Israeli forces to make considerations for civilian life, to limit the the impact on civilians in Gaza, because you know, it was interesting to see how he invoked the aftermath of September 11th. He said, you know, the United States 
sought justice, we got justice, but we also paid a price. And so he's trying to share some of those lessons with Israel to make sure that the reaction to this horrific attack doesn't turn the world against Israel and make it harder to seek justice and to keep Israel safe in the future. This week, the Biden administration's support of Israel has drawn the ire of at least one State Department official. Josh Paul, who said he had worked, who said he's worked in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs for more than 11 years, said on LinkedIn that he resigned, quote, due to a policy disagreement concerning our continued lethal assistance to Israel, end quote. James, this may seem like a very inside Washington story, but why is this important to know? Well, it's important to know. I mean, he he pointed to the lethal assistance. It's hard to imagine that he thinks that anything uh, else could have happened when Israel is in the middle of a, of a war. However, he, he is expressing a lot of uh, disgruntlement in the State Department over the fact that the peace process with the, between Israel and the Palestinians has been moribund for more than a decade. Uh, but maybe if we step back from this horrible terrorist attack that Israel suffered, we have the most right-wing Israeli government ever in its history in its history of the country that was talking about annexing uh, the West Bank uh, and Gaza, putting millions of Palestinians uh, in, a, in a sort of apartheid situation. Uh, it was, you know, the Palestinians were an afterthought in both the Trump administration's Abraham Accords outreach to try to get some of Israel's neighbors to, to, to recognize it and, and establish relationships. The Biden administration's trying to build on that momentum by getting Saudi Arabia and Israel to reach a, an accord to normalize relationships. And in all that diplomacy, very little has been said about what happens to the Palestinians and what happens to the two-state solution. No one seems to even talk about that anymore. And that is absolutely essential to this. I was, I was, uh, you know, pleased to see President Biden mention it last night. It wasn't first uh, in his speech, but it, he did mention it. And if you look beyond this current conflict, that is the context for why Gaza is an open air prison and why there's so much anger built up in the West Bank that we're seeing now in these protests. David, oh, did you hear what would did you hear of Josh Paul in Beijing? Uh, the, so the debate here just is a complete mirror image of what you're just describing. Here it is all about uh, how uh, we should only be talking about how we need to have a two-state solution. The Americans are seen as selfishly backing Israel uh, for political reasons. We've seen a former Chinese chief envoy to the Middle East, special envoy to the Middle East, give an interview where he said that this is all about the Jewish vote, uh, which is so important that Joe Biden has to do whatever it takes to support Israel. So for China, this is another fresh excuse to paint America as the warmonger. So on state TV, we see images of Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. Uh, They have not really discussed the attacks by Hamas. And then we see images of American aircraft carriers and warships entering the region with this kind of message that the Americans bring death and destruction and war. And so there is no debate to the fact you have dissent within the American government or people in the State Department who are unhappy. Here, the message is all about the wicked, bullying hegemon America, biased and backing Israel for its own selfish political reasons. David, can I throw this question from a listener to you? Rebecca just emailed us with this. Can we really ever hope for a real two-state solution? Maybe this was never a real possibility? Look, it's a depressingly good question. And certainly, I think all of those world leaders and powers, including China, where I am, but others like the Russians and certainly across the Arab world who say, that there is no solution, there will be no peace until you get to a two-state solution. Of course, at some level, that is a statement of a position that's certainly true. Many European governments 
But it's not a solution to this war right now because we have rarely been further away from a two-state solution. So I guess sitting here in Beijing, the astonishing kind of really dismaying gulf with the debate in somewhere like America and here is that in America, there's an understanding that you have, if you're Joe Biden, to hug the Israelis close if you have any hope of restraining the most extreme voices inside the Israeli governing coalition who really want to wreak, you know, untold punishment on the Palestinians in Gaza. Here, and in so many other countries in the world, it is seen as merely this outrageous bias on the part of America, this bullying hegemon, and that, that there is no sort of belief that even America is acting in a sincere diplomatic way. It's all about the kind of the lowest of political motives. And so, of course, at some level, you need to give the Palestinians hope that there is some future for them. But right now, if the aim is to try and stop the worst from happening this week and next week, I think, you know, you get to where President Biden is reaching out to the Israelis to try and reassure them that America is on their side, but wants to see restraint. President Biden arrived in Israel as its military said it was preparing, quote, coordinated attacks from the air, sea and land. But reporting from Bloomberg this week found the U.S. influence might be changing the course of the war and also involve preparing for what happens afterwards. Anna, can you tell us a little bit more about this reporting? Yeah, I mean, I mean, my colleagues in Israel, you know, obviously been working very hard on this story and um, reported that Israel might be reconsidering a ground invasion in part because of the toll that would um, that could cause for Israeli forces and also the question of what comes next. We know this is something that Biden brought to Israeli leadership, you know, saying it's all it's all well and good to seek retribution, to seek justice, to um, you know, try to take out Hamas's leadership. But what's what's the next play? What comes after that ground invasion? You know, he warned against occupying the Gaza Strip just because of the incredible complexity of um, urban warfare in a place where you have tightly packed civilians and a system of tunnels. So we'll see what happens this weekend. We still have Israeli forces um, gathering near the border with Gaza. So, you know, I think there's a lot of really difficult decisions that Israel is making right now. We know how the U.S. has counseled them to act, and we'll see to what extent they take that into consideration. We know that more than 200 hostages held in Gaza include civilians with passports from at least 31 other countries. James, do we know about the fate of these hostages? What's known about them? Sadly, not a lot. Um, there have been, uh, and a lot of what is known, I'm sure, is being kept secret because these are very, very sensitive uh, intelligence gathering efforts. But um, we're not even sure where most of them are. You know, as has been mentioned, Gaza has a subterranean tunnel network that um, the you could put, they could be almost anywhere. It's very doubtful that they're all in one place. So it's very hard to think about a, a raid that would, ca- you know, that would free them all. Um, and that would be difficult. Obviously, you'd have to fight your way in. Uh, that would be dangerous for the hostages. Uh, Thirteen of which might be American. They're who are un- Americans who are unaccounted for. So the hostage situation is pr- probably another reason why Israel is pausing and trying to think about what happens to those hostages if they come storming in with tanks. Uh, so it, it's a diabolical problem for the Israelis and and for all their allies. Dilip just emailed us. David, I'm going to ask you to answer this one. What conversations are there surrounding a safe corridor for humanitarian aid in the north of Gaza? I mean, certainly it's one of the things that we've seen uh, leaders pushing for, uh, foreign leaders coming in. And, uh, you know, you're seeing, you know, for example, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who visited Israel whilst he offered the most extraordinarily staunch support 
for uh, Bibi Netanyahu standing next to him talking about standing with Israel in its darkest hour, kind of picking up on language from uh, Britain's memories of World War II. He did also say very deliberately that he uh, hopes that Israel is, is glad to see that Israel will be taking every precaution to avoid harming civilians in contrast to the terrorists of Hamas. And there's you're seeing them. You know, he also called for uh, he, he welcomed the idea of opening uh, routes into Gaza for aid to go in. But of course, you know, there's a lot of this game of Western leaders thanking and praising Bibi Netanyahu's government for making gestures towards humanitarian convoys and deliveries of aid, when in fact the evidence is that it's not quite a done deal. So there's an element of trying to kind of reward and thank Israel for taking decisions that clearly are causing some angst and debate uh, on the Israeli side, because we're not seeing this aid going in, even at the simplest crossing point, which is the rougher crossing point uh, from Egypt into the south of of Gaza, where you have, you know, the UN on the brink of trying to send 20 trucks in and still, uh, as far as we can tell, hopes that they would go in today, not actually being delivered. We had startling news from the Pentagon on Thursday. Officials say a U.S. Navy warship in the Red Sea shot down three land attack cruise missiles and several drones overhead. And we cannot say for certain what these missiles and drones were targeting, but they were launched from Yemen, heading north along the Red Sea, potentially towards targets in Israel. That's Pentagon spokesperson General Patrick Ryder. The weapons were launched by Iran-backed Houthi forces in Yemen. This directly draws the U.S. military into action in the region. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin was in Beijing meeting with China's top leader, Xi Jinping. David, what was Putin doing in China this week? At the most basic level, he was the guest of honor in a giant show being put on by the communist leader Xi Jinping for the 10th anniversary of this giant global infrastructure scheme, the Belt and Road Initiative. But there's much more to it than that. This was the first visit by Vladimir Putin to China since he signed this extraordinarily important political deal on the very beginning of the, uh, just a few days before the invasion of Ukraine, where if you remember, Vladimir Putin came to Beijing for the Winter Olympics and signed this deal proclaiming this no limits friendship between Russia and China. And a few days later, after Russia invaded Ukraine, you saw China delivering on its side of that no limits friendship. And to this day, China has not uh, rebuked or condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. China pretends to be neutral, but it's not. And what you've seen over the last 20 months of the war in Ukraine, and it's now been further accelerated by the war between Israel and Hamas, is an alignment, a very public alignment between these two strongmen leaders, Vladimir Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China, where they stand against America and the American-led West and offer an alternative kind of global governance system and reach out explicitly to developing countries and the global South and say that you see that the West is morally bankrupt and is a bringer of war, and we bring uh, a fairer, more equitable, more balanced global order. And so Vladimir Putin, to a remarkable extent, was actually playing kind of deputy to Xi Jinping this week in Beijing and giving a speech after Xi Jinping where he lavishly praised Xi Jinping, his dear friend. James, so to David's point, what do Biden and Putin's simultaneous trips, the former to Israel, the latter to China, reveal about how we are seeing these global interests aligning with the war? No, it's it's very interesting and also very, very dangerous. Um, we're seeing the world uh, align, uh, much like in, during the Cold War, where you have authoritarian and uh, uh, regimes and, and, and 
countries lined up. Uh, we have a war in Europe, a war of aggression by an authoritarian Russia. You have this, uh, what David was talking about, this No Limits Partnership. Uh, Iran is in that mix. Both Iran and North Korea are, have sent weapons to Russia to help it wage its war against Ukraine. Uh, Iran is behind Hamas and Hezbollah that is, that is threatening to escalate the conflict there. So there is this uh, axis of the sanction, as someone said, um, where they are lining up. They, they do uh, object to the sort of U.S.-led international rules-based order. Um, unfortunately, the order they seem to want to draw on uh, and, and take as inspiration is something similar to the 1930s where might makes right and China is uh, perfectly free to threaten and perhaps invade its neighbor Taiwan. Russia is you know, free to wage war against its neighbor Ukraine. And Iran has a free hand to try to uh, you know, get, uh, you know, destroy Israel. So it's not a world order that we'll ever be able to live uh, peacefully with. So we, we are seeing something like a, a Cold War realignment here, and it's uh, you know the, the, it raises the possibility of escalation when when these wars break out because um, we're on opposite sides of it. China's geopolitical power has a lot to do with it having the world's second largest economy. But this week, a new report from the International Monetary Fund indicated that growth is slowing. Even so, the IMF is projecting the Asia and Pacific region will contribute two-thirds of global economic growth this year. David, can you just give us a quick sense here of how China's economic and political prowess is intertwined in this conversation? Absolutely. I mean, there's not an enormous number of countries out there that love China. And of the kind of 20 or so leaders who came to Beijing this week uh, for this 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Forum, they weren't there really to say that they trust uh, China or that all of them think that China has their interests at heart. But China has lent, uh, by its own account, something like a trillion dollars over the last 10 years to build railways and dams and roads and airports all over the world. Now, some of those projects are still mired in debt and there's concerns about, you know, countries took on too much debt. But if you are the leader of a developing country and the status quo uh, run by America and others in the rich world didn't seem to suit you, if you had uh, the International Monetary Fund breathing down your neck about your spending, if you couldn't build that railway that you had promised your public, for the last many years, China looked like a kind of get out of jail free card. They would lend you money when no one else would. They would build railways more cheaply than anyone else would. And if China offered to buy your minerals or your, your farm products and sell you cheap electronic goods, it seemed like that that was going to transform your life and you were going to have this route, this route to development. And so you've seen that a tremendous amount of China's clout around the world has been driven by the idea that in the phrase that Xi Jinping sometimes likes to use with foreign leaders, he invites other countries to hitch a ride on the express train of China's development. Now, what you referred to at the beginning, this IMF report, is the latest in a long sign of warnings that the Chinese economy is slowing down they have some very serious domestic economic problems. And of course, if your express train turns into a kind of local stopper, then fewer people are going to want to jump on board. So there's a direct link with China's global clout and its economic health at home. The U.S. is attempting to limit China's progress in the area of AI. Uh, Anna, we just have a minute or two before the break, but I just want to ask you about on Tuesday, the Biden administration announced additional limits on sales to China of advanced semiconductors. Why? This is a follow-up to um, the export controls that were imposed 
October 7th of last year to limit China's access to compute power. Now, this is what you need to make advanced AI systems. The concern from the U.S. being that China will use U.S. innovation, U.S. technology in order to empower and um, make its military more technologically advanced. So the idea between this latest round of kind of tightening these controls is that you close some of those loopholes in some of these slightly uh, less advanced chips that were still able to be exported and kind of make that initial policy more effective. On Sunday, the U.N. aid chief said the conflict has killed up to 9,000 people and is, quote, one of the worst humanitarian nightmares in recent history. This week, the U.K. Minister for Africa, Andrew Mitchell, told the BBC that violence by the RSF bore all the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. The RSF has been accused of ethnic cleansing for months since the conflict started. The paramilitary group repeatedly denies this. Here's what a Sudanese refuge in Chad shared about collecting the bodies of those who were killed with the RSF. Every morning, we started by gathering bodies outside in the street. First, we had to count them. There were 50, 60, 70, depending on the day. It was forbidden to take photos. We could only work and nothing else. We loaded the bodies into a lorry, one on top of the other, like goods. Once, there were 80 bodies in the lorry. We asked, are you going to bury them properly, each in a grave? They said, no, we're going to put them all together and cover them with soil. Anna, how has the fighting affected all Sudanese civilians here? I mean, like you said, and that, like we heard in that clip, it's just such a tragic situation with civilians bearing the brunt of this conflict. Um, you know, there have been mass graves discovered. The UN saying that this could amount to to war crimes. And you know, what's so kind of frustrating and tragic about this? I remember being on on this program talking about this back in April when this conflict first started, and there was a feeling then that. We saw this happening. We saw where it could go, given the history in this region. And there was you know, both the U.S. and, and foreign diplomats trying to stop it and um, the Sudanese people, you know, especially in Khartoum in the capital, watching this unfold, kind of had this, the, this terror, this premonition that this is where it was going to go. And this is where we find ourselves now. Um, a lot of the fighting has spread to Western Darfur, obviously a region that has um, seen a lot of turbulence and um, even genocide already this, this new century. And um, civilians continue to bear the brunt. And it's hard to see how the, the country pulls out of this. And um, I think now the the main diplomatic goal is to keep it from spreading to neighboring countries and to help the the refugees who've been fleeing fleeing the region. James, do we know who's in control of this region now? It's it's not clear. I mean, as as the uh, frequently the case with civil wars, which tend to be the most savage wars, um, you know, there's no clear battle lines. Uh, you know, 68 villages were burned, but it's not altogether clear if that was by just one of the groups or it was it was it was a back and forth. So there's a lot we don't know. There's some Arab on Arab violence in this. There's some Arab violence against non-Arab. Uh, 
Masalit uh, ethnic group that is the largest ethnic group around Darfur. So um, it, it's just not, it's, it's a very hazy picture. And, and quite honestly, the world's attention is, uh, which is finite, uh, a lot of the West's attention is focused on Ukraine and Israel, and we, we're, they don't have a lot of uh, visibility on the ground. Speaking of Ukraine this week, the U.S. delivered on a promise to send long-range tactical missiles known as ATACMS to Ukraine. James, the U.S. hasn't made any public statements about the delivery of these missiles. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky confirmed the delivery in one of his nightly addresses. What advantage do these weapons give Ukraine on the battlefield? Range, uh, and that's critical. Basically, they can. Um, you know, when the it was a, a big deal when the United States finally relented, as has been the, the sort of. Uh, the routine we we initially said no, and then eventually uh, said said yes. Recently, they they now have the weapons. They've just attacked a Russian air base with them, uh, destroying nine helicopters. That's a really big deal because these attack helicopters have really held up this counteroffensive of the Ukrainians because they strafe the the formations as they gather. So these uh, missiles, which are not as long range as some in our own arsenal, but about a hundred miles, can just about range any. Uh, command and control node, any air base, and uh, any logistics hub, ammo, de- ammo depot inside Ukraine proper. And uh, that's a huge advantage. It keeps the Russians from, uh, from you know, c- critical logistics operations. Uh, again, the air, the airfields uh, h- hitting them is, is, is vital. So these have been a, uh, a, major, a major plus for Ukraine, and uh, President Zelensky has, has said as much. Why hasn't the Biden administration said anything publicly about this decision? Well, each step along the way, we're trying to keep from this war from escalating. And they don't want to rub the nose of Russia in the fact that we're supplying now weapons that can range us about everything they're doing in Ukraine. We got a question from a listener. David, I'm going to ask you to answer this. Dylan emailed us and said, why are American lawmakers so united in supporting Israel but split about supporting Ukraine? I think a lot of it's got to do with domestic politics. And remember that Ukraine has this kind of uniquely strange aspect that uh, former President Trump feels a sort of sense of personal animus about Ukraine. And that went back to his presidency, where it was all tied up with his own domestic political ambitions and his sort of uh, accusations of corruption in the Biden family. And so an enormous number of people on the hard right of the Republican Party, including some members of Congress, certainly in the House, take their cue from President Trump that Ukraine is somehow... Uh, not a good country. And you're seeing, you know, people on the sort of the far right of the American media also leading this idea that Ukraine is not a good country and some sympathy in, in some ways, even on the hard right for Vladimir Putin. And so I think that you're seeing the dynamic of that playing out now, which is that President Biden is now trying to attach funding for Ukraine to a bill that will clearly get enormous support for funding to Israel. They're even trying to tuck some money for Taiwan into that. And I think what that really speaks to is the fact that certainly on the far right and arguably on the far left in America, isolationism, which is a very old tradition in America, of course, is on the rise. The American public, understandably, is tired of a world that seems increasingly chaotic and not sure why it should support uh, every sort of conflict around the world. And so you see, although there's a majority in Congress for supporting more aid for Ukraine, it's getting harder to get that past a, a very loud minority of critics of Ukraine and the war. Anna, what did you make of President Biden's address last night and tying the two together? 
Oh, it was, you know, in some ways it made sense. In some ways it kind of seemed like a, a little bit of a clumsy transition to go from talking about Hamas and Israel to um, say, you know, and remember about Ukraine. Um, but one thing that really struck me was the way he described this as an investment. You know, he said the um, supplemental appropriations that he's asking for right now that David mentioned to support Israel and Ukraine is an investment in a more secure world that's going to pay dividends for future generations of Americans. So, you know, he may kind of frame this as um, defense of democracy and defense against uh, kind of geopolitical um, aggressors. And while he didn't mention China by name, he kind of mentioned the, the code word of the Indo-Pacific and kind of made the historical case that when you have geopolitical bullies, um, the world has to stand up to them or they will only feel emboldened. So, you know, that was a case he was making um, certainly to the American people, but certainly to the U.S. Congress last night and to the rest of the world. Argentina goes to the polls this Sunday. The right-wing populist Javier Malay shocked Argentina's political class when he unexpectedly received the most votes in the August primaries. Malay has proposed to dollarize the country, close the central bank, and cut state spending sharply. He's drawn similarities to former President Trump for his brash campaign tactics. He will face economy minister Sergio Massa and former security minister Patricia Bullrich in this general election this Sunday. Now to the latest from Europe. Election results in Poland revealed big wins for the country's opposition parties, which have officially ended the eight-year reign of the right-wing party. The three opposition parties won a combined 248 seats of the 460-seat parliament. David, exit polls showed voter participation in Poland at a record high of 72.9 percent. What are the big takeaways from this election? Well, uh, in a world full of terrible news, uh, this was an unambiguous piece of good news. Uh, we have had eight years of a really uh, shabby populist conservative government under law and justice who have tried to follow the path taken by some other strongmen leaders in Europe, particularly the leader in Hungary, Viktor Orban. And we saw this Polish government for the last several years packing things like state television, uh, main institutions of state with party cronies trying to undermine the independence of the Polish judiciary to such an extent that the European Union formally blocked tens of billions of dollars in EU funding that Poland was due to receive in order to make the point that the, the rule of law itself was in danger. And this election campaign was extremely dirty. We saw the, the, the ruling law and justice party using its control of state media to really depict uh, the opposition leader, Donald Tusk, as a kind of pawn of Russia, as half German, as a traitor to his own country, really a, a very, very sort of dirty, nasty campaign. And remember, this follows also some very large political rows about things like abortion with the ruling party wanting to greatly restrict abortion in Poland. And what we saw was not just a record turnout nationwide, but a record turnout among the young, uh, the highest ever since Poland became a democracy after the end of the Soviet uh, bloc. And we now say see these three these three parties in coalition, as you say, with a majority. That may take some time to form a government because the president, uh, who was not being elected this time, it was the parliament being elected, the president is still from the old conservative ruling party. And so he can invite uh, his old party to have a first try at forming the election because they received more votes than any other single party. They will fail. Then the coalition will have a go. But the president can still veto laws. And so it's unambiguous good news that a pro-European, 
uh, centrist coalition looks like taking power in Warsaw, driving this party that, frankly, was challenging and threatening the rule of law in Poland in very dangerous ways. But they will still have a divided government with parliament and the president on either side. So we're not out of the woods. But in a world of terrible news, I'm willing to celebrate this piece as a good piece of news. Well, thanks for celebrating that. I do want to end by talking about the massive protests that are ongoing throughout Europe uh, in regards to the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Governments are beginning to respond. France has banned all pro-Palestinian protests in the country. We've also seen a fair share of protests in Germany this week. Uh, Pro-Palestinian protests in Berlin turned violent on Wednesday evening, leading to 65 police officers injured and 174 people temporarily detained. Anna, what do these massive protests say, whether we're talking about France or Germany, how Europe is being affected by this war in Gaza and Israel? Well, I mean, like the conflict itself, there's a history here that kind of colors the reaction right now. I mean, Europe obviously dealing with the, the worst of the Holocaust in, in the last century and being very concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism in response to the actions that Israel takes in response to this Hamas terrorist attack. So, you know, you see a lot of, you know, international concern about the fate of the Palestinian people. Obviously, this Hamas attack didn't happen in a vacuum. You have um, a lot of desperation among the Palestinian people and a lot of um, kind of solidarity for that across the world. Um, certainly, you know, hopefully in most cases, not for for the attacks themselves. So, you know, it's interesting to see how authorities in Europe have responded to that in going so far as trying to ban uh, pro-Palestinian protests, which, of course, raises a whole new set of problems with um, free speech con concerns and Amnesty International speaking out and saying, you know, while um, we obviously understand the need to ensure public order, um, people have the right to uh, express their view, to take to the streets in support of the Palestinian people. And um, it's going to be a very delicate balancing act for European leaders, also here in the United States. You know, we've seen pro-Palestinian protests in the um, Senate office buildings that drew a lot of scorn from uh, Republican lawmakers. So this is going to be really a balancing act for the whole world. Something we will continue to follow. I want to thank my guests this hour, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, co-host of the Drum Tower podcast, Anna Edgerton, Seattle Bureau Chief and National Security Reporter at Bloomberg News, and James Kitfield, a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and author of the book In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And before we wrap, one last bit of news. What was that, you ask? That is 14-year-old Bella, a mixed cat from Cambridgeshire in the UK. And this week, her purr broke the Guinness World Record for the world's loudest purr by a domestic cat. It measured 54.59 decibels for context that's similar to the sound of a kettle boiling. My Kid is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Adrian Danhauser. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast with help this week from Jorgelina Manarea and Lauren Hamilton. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. NPR.